Okay, let's get started with Parshas Miketz, Tavshin Ayin Vav, and we'll uh, hopefully have some thoughts uh, related to Hanukkah, as well as we are in the Yantav of Hanukkah, Tavshin Ayin Vav. But of course, as we always do, we'll start off with the Parsha. And we start off with the Rabbeinu Bachai in source number one. Those who are familiar with Rabbeinu Bachai's commentary, Rabbeinu Bachai starts off every Parsha with a Pasuk in Mishlei, develops an idea related to the Pasuk in Mishlei, and then relates it to the first Pasuk in the Parsha. So here, Rabbi Bachai discusses the first pasuk: "Batachel Hashem b'chol libcha, rely on Hashem with all your heart, ve'el binascha al tishain, and do not rely on your own bina." Well, what's the message of that pasuk? First word is "betach," "batach." So as we will see, Rabbi Bachai is going to talk to us about bitachon, about trusting in God. Shlomo HaMelech Yasir Bakasuv Azeh. Shlomo HaMelech warns us with this pasuk: "Al midas habitachon." Relating to bitachon mipnei shumikare hatorva mitzvos, it is an ikar, it is a tenet. Life without bitachon is not life. A connection without focusing and realizing that Hakadosh Baruch Hu is in charge of our lives, the little things and the big things, there's so much lacking. Yomar sheyiftach. Therefore, this pasuk teaches me sheyiftach adam b'Hakadosh Baruch Hu b'chalibo v'lo yiftach v'lo yishar binasa. We have to realize we have to do what we could do. But we also have to realize the rest is up to Hashem. If all of a sudden we start trusting our own assets, our own riches, or my own strength, or my own wisdom, I start focusing on myself, we have to realize that's not what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants from us. To realize that Kaddish Baruch Hu is what's behind all of our talents, all of our abilities, anything we accomplish in life is all with His help. And we accomplish nothing without Hashem helping us, as we say every morning. Right, line six, there are many machshavos in the heart of a person. We try, we plan, but ultimately... Right, the, as the saying goes, man plants and God laughs, but the uh, different versions of that phrase, but that, that's what we have in Tehillim. Rabbis Machshavos Belevish, Vatsas Hashemi Takum, we have to realize Hakarish Barachu is, is in charge. And now skip down a couple of lines, says Rabbeinu Bachai, and this is also, he's quoting, uh, also from the Chovas Alavavos, line 13, the Yadua ki Bitchono Shal Adam, Mischalak al Shmona Chalakim. There are eight categories of Bitachon. There are eight levels, there are eight stages of bitachon as we talk about that connection. Ha'echad, and he goes through, it's even as a, is a process that we go through in life. Ha'echad, who betchilas told us so, when a person is born. What type of bitachon does a person have when they're born, a baby? Bitachon is, the whole world is the mother, the mother and the milk. That's the whole world. Boteach al imo mezono The mother is totally supporting, and the reason for existence of the child. Without the mother, the child does not exist. That is ultimate dependence. Ultimate uh, existence based on the other. That's a baby. That is number one. I think we mentioned a number of years ago. The connection, fascinating Ha'ara, that in every language, there are different words for parents. So father, it's all different. Father, Abba, Tati, just for three. Each one has a different different sound, different names. Every language. 
Mother in every language has the same root. Mom, ima, mama, mother. It's all ma. It's all ama, ma, something. That's all. Why? Emuna. Emuna, because the root of emuna is this, this pure, pristine, relying on God. Ma, that, 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 that sound. And it could be that's what even what a baby says. Ma, ma, ma. That's the first sound a baby makes. But it's all because the ultimate, the first step of bitachon and emuna, maybe the most pure. The, the baby knows nothing else besides the mother. But that's how we have to feel in a certain sense. That's the first stage of emuna, this first stage of bitachon that we have, that we all had when we were born. Number one. Number two. Second line, line 15. Hasheni. Charles gets a little older. Now they realize they have their they have an independent existence. Now they rely on their parents for to buy them food, to pr- provide them food. To feed what is sweet to me, to give me what is sweet to my palate. Right, they're a little older, a toddler, a child. When they realize, you know, it's still I'm relying on a, on on my parents always. Right, the end of sixteen. Yomar David Olav Shalom Shaya Mashuach Mashve Umidamen Nafsho Bebitachon Hashem Yismarach Kigmol Aboteach Alimo. Right, that's David Hamelach. All these took him into Hillim. David compares Bitachon at different stages to different levels, different relationships with our parents. Right, a baby is one. A child has a different mentality, but also realizes that a parent is in charge. Hashlichi, as he gets older, then all of a sudden he realizes, well, well, maybe ultimately it's the father that brings home the paycheck. Right, in our day and age, maybe there's two paychecks. But in the, you know, the classic style, the father is the one that makes a living. Right, what does that, what does it say in, uh, in, in Parshas Bracious? Right, what is, Adam is cursed with that. He's gonna have to make a living. So, relying on the Father, that's a little deeper understanding about what the root of uh, Bitachon is. And these aren't mutually exclusive. There could be overlap between them. When our eyes are opened, Ultimately, whatever my mother buys for me is because my father brought home the money to be able to support it. Says Next, we get a little higher. All of a sudden now, I start relying. As I get older now, maybe I'm a, I'm a teenager. All of a sudden, I think that I could do it myself. Right? I am beyond the earlier stages. I'm thinking of myself. The Yomad. Ezuhi. Uh, what can I do? So first, I'm, it's only my mother. Then it's my mother pr- providing. Then it's my father. Then it's me. All the different stages. But ultimately, what's behind all of those stages? You get to line 21. And then I realize there's somebody behind my mother who's behind my father who's behind me, and that's Hakadosh Baruch Hu. And then we start getting to the real levels of bitachon. Rabbeinu Bachai says, "How much do I allow Hakadosh Baruch Hu in to my life? How much do I think he's involved? I do all of this, but he helps me out with this. How much?" And the highest level, as he continues with all of these high levels of bitachon, is. 
when he realizes that everything is up to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If I miss the bus or if I make the bus, if I stub my toe, if this, if that, there are chazals that tell us, Hashgacha Pratis. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is involved. Unlike the Sefer HaChinuch writes, that by animals, by all other creations in the world, there's Hashgacha Klalas. Hashem does not care about every single squirrel or every single horse. He cares about the species. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu has a relationship with every single person. Every single human being, says Rabbeinu Bachai, and the ultimate is to recognize that he is so deeply involved, and it's all him. And that's what he quotes on line 38. One Rabbeinu Bachai quoting another Rabbeinu Bachai. Some pe- people pronounce it differently. Rabbeinu Bachia, the Chovas the author, Rabbeinu Bachai. So one quoting the other. But he says, what does this all have to do? Why is he quoting this here at the beginning of Parshas Miketz? Right, based on the Pasuk and Mishle, as we said, he always relates it. Because the Medrash at the end of last week's Parsha, we're going to see it inside, Hashem in a minute, also discusses Yosef's Bitachon. At the end of the last week's Parsha, what does Yosef say? He says to the Saramashim as he gets out, please put in a good word to Paro for me. Let him know, put him a good word. And Chazal picked up on that and said, for Yosef, that was not the appropriate action. Why? Because Yosef was on, out of these eight levels, we didn't do all the last few, Yosef, what was demanded of Yosef was a very high level of bitachon. And therefore, the Medrash says, he stayed in jail for an extra two years because of that quote-unquote lack of of bitachon. And that's what he says, if you go to line 45, milos. That he reminded him, please get me out of this. And that's why we start off the parsha. Yosef was in jail for two years, and then Paro had the dream, and the rest occurred. Okay, so that's about Bitachon. But now let's get into the Medrash specifically. The Medrash tells us, if you see in source number two now, the exact language of the Medrash, line two. The Pasuk tells us, praised is the person who places his trust in God and doesn't turn to other sources. And we dash in that Pasuk about Yosef. Praised is the man who trusts in God. That's talking about Yosef. What does that second half of the Pasuk mean? That's also talking about Yosef. Please remember me and remind Paro. So the Medrash says that both halves of the Pasuk are talking about Yosef. Praise is the one who trusts in God and you don't turn to other sources. Ask all the Mepharshim. We're going to see two answers. How do you read the Medrash? First, the Medrash says that Yosef was a Baal Bitachon. Yosef was amazing. Who is the one that trusts? That's talking about Yosef. And what's the second half of the Pasuk? Don't turn to other sources. That's also about Yosef. So which is it? Was Yosef a Baal Bitachon or was Yosef not a Baal Bitachon? Says the Hadrash B'ha'iyun. Rabbi Ayyelavin, Ayyeluin, on line number eight. Let me explain something that the Medrash is cluing us in. If you ever want to say something that somebody did today, let's say Ruvain did something amazing. I want to say what Ruvain did. If I say it with excitement, you know what that reflects? That it's not normally done. 
If somebody always acts in a certain way, then I'm not, not going to get so excited about it on that day. If somebody's always in shul, then I'm not going to give him a big hello when he walks into shul every day. If somebody never comes to shul, maybe he davened in a different shul. Maybe he's from out of town. All of a sudden he comes in, oh, shalom aleichem. You give him a big hello because it's surprising. It's not common. Says that Joshua Ian, if you ever want to report a story about someone and you're excited about it, Zela Oz Shein Darkobakach. That reflects that that's not normal. That's not commonly done. Kilu Hayaragulasos Kane, because if the person always does that, the act wouldn't raise our antennas. Wow! It wouldn't be new. Turning over. That they'll say, wow, amazing. Because something that always happens is not a chiddish. We're not going to be mechadish that. Al-Derech Marshall, he gives a marshal. If you say, you know what Ruvain did today? He did a, a big chesed. You know what that means? In general, Ruvain doesn't do such great chesed. Right? Oh, He gave how much money to Staka? Wow. That means he usually doesn't give so much to Staka. Maybe he doesn't give anything to Staka. Right, he has not been tested. Usually he's not this. Let's say somebody gets a, a Rebbe. When a Rebbe is, is with his Talmidim, and somebody gets to Shear on time, or Davide on time, he gives one of them a big hello. What about the other ten guys in the Shear? That are there on time. Okay, they're always there. But the Chiddush is when somebody does it. Not that it's a good thing. But it's uh, when, uh, when there's a surprise. And then he even says it works the opposite way as well. The Gemara tells us in Baba Basra, on line 6, Al Yisaper Adam Bitovaso Shel Chavero. It might be surprising, but the Gemara says, you shouldn't even tell over a story about somebody, something good. Why? Shemitoch Tovaso Balidei Through the good report, it could lead to the negative report. What does that mean? So the means, if you start talking about somebody, you'll probably like start talking about some, oh yeah, he was good, yeah, but some other things might come up about him. Says the Joshua, you know, it's meduyak, it's specific. If you say, if you're very excited about somebody who did something good, so what does that mean in general? That he doesn't do great things. That you're never, always, never, uh, the other times you're not excited that he did this. Ki atzmo, middle of line seven. Shemisaprim bitovaso shaladam. That itself that you're saying something good about a person. Umifarim, umishabchim aisav. I'm praising kitovasa. The low naveti lava yakar, he's deserving of praise. So in that itself shows it reflects his gnus, shows the negative, because he's usually not like this. That's why the, the best policy is we don't talk about other people. Right? We don't talk about the negative, obviously, but even about the positive. We've quoted in the past the great line Great people talk about ideas, medium people talk about things, little people talk about other people. Right? So we have to try our best to talk about ideas. That's the greatest to talk about Torah ideas, philosophical ideas, but the lowest level is to talk about other people. As the Gemara says here, we shouldn't be talking because it could lead to the negative. So says now, line 15, 
As we just said, you talk about something great that somebody did, so then that'll reflect that he's usually not great. But what if somebody is always great? If somebody's always great, so then if you pick up on the one time he did something bad, that's true, but that really reflects that he's really amazing. So it's really a Sheva. What does the Gemara say in Brachos? When somebody's always in davening on time, the day he comes late, Hashem comes and says, where are you? And all the Mepharshim say, what, if somebody never comes to shul, then Hashem never checks up on them? The answer is because Hashem is close to the one who comes every day. So when he doesn't come one day, Hashem's like, everything okay? What's going on? So says the Drash Vahayun on line 16. If we get very excited that somebody didn't do something perfect, that's really a praise. That's really saying something great about them. And that, of course, as we could already see, that's, that's what's going on here in the Medrash. What does the Medrash say? What was the question? How could the same Pasuk say Yosef is a tremendous Babi Tachon and at the same time say, yeah, but he messed up? But that's the point. The point is to first emphasize that he's a Babi Tachon. To first emphasize that he always has trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And always realize, even when he went down to Mitzrayim and he's sitting in the jail, he was an unbelievable Babi Tachon. That's the first half of the Pasuk. Once you have that background, once you set the stage for... Yosef is this unbelievable Babi Tachon, so then you can mention one stain. Then you can mention one time where he slipped up. Because that's not really something negative about him in general. Nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. But to emphasize his mistake with the background of his perfection in the area, that's really all a praise of Yosef Hatzadik. And that's the Pshad of the Medrash. Line 27, Kein Dabar Gambi Yosef, she super mimenul dvar chidish, shekara lo mikra lo tar, something happened. Shebatak basara mashkim. He was boteach, he trusted in the Saramashkim. The Hesir Bitchonom Hashem, he didn't totally focus on Hashem, and that's why he got stuck in the jail for another two years. And take it as a package. He's great, but here he had one slight fallout. Answer number one. But there's another answer related. Same question from Rav Yisrael Salanter. Rav Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the, uh, the Musr movement in source number four, quoted here in the Sefer Minchas Michael. He quotes, we had eight categories of Bitachon before. Let's simplify it into two. Let's simplify. Two categories of Bitachon. Trust in God. Says of Yisrael Salanter, Two levels. Number one, Ha'achas, and this first level is not really Lamaisa for any of us. No ishtablis. I'm just going to wait. Akadosh Baruch is going to help me. I'm not going to do anything. Akadosh Baruch is going to send money flying down to me. He's going to send the Yeshua. I'm not going to go to a doctor. He's going to... Oh, just no ishtablis. No efforts. Human effort. And even when they're sick, they're not going to go to the doctor. Hashem Yazor. Right? Like the, like the guy in the, in the, who's drowning. I sends him a boat and a helicopter and a, Hashem Yazo, Hashem sent you a helicopter. Hashem sent you a boat. Right? No, Hashem's gonna help. That's one level. Ukenegda, but that's not for most of us. Right? Ukenegda, what's the other level? Obviously realize God Baruch Hu is in charge, but we can't have him in charge totally. We also have to do our best, do our hishtavos, do our work, and then Hashem will meet us. Go to the doctor, make a living, 
but don't go overboard. If I have enough money, then I have to go home and learn with my kids, and I have to realize that Kodesh Baruch was giving me everything. Fascinating. Says if you saw Salanti, you know what happened here? Yosef didn't think he was on such a level. Yosef didn't think he was Yosef Hatzadik. He thought he was not on the level of Hashem doing everything for him. He thought he needed to take part. He thought he needed to do his own ishtavos. So his own humility led to his asking the Sahamashkim for help. He didn't think he was on the level to merit pure nais or pure bitachon from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Yosef, Uli Yosef, bitachon. He had unbelievable bitachon. That's the first half of the Pasuk. He inherently had the unbelievable level. Ashrei Sam Hashem Yosef, because of the great Yerashamayim that he had, he didn't think he was roy for it. And he didn't think he would be roy for an ace. Therefore, he tried a little bit. So really, the, it's not that the Pasuk is first praising him and then insulting him. It's all a praise. The first half is saying the level of bitachon that he was really on. He was on the level that he would have been zochet to direct hashgacha from Hashem without trying at all. What does the second level part of the Pasuk say? But he didn't think he was. He didn't think he was on that level. He thought he was on the level that he has to try something. He thought he was on the lower level that he needs to do what he should establish. I'm not going to my Yosef. He shouldn't do anything, but Baruch had to teach him that, Yosef, you are. You are on that level, and you have to realize, I'm going to take you out the second that it's time. Two years later, it was time for Yeritzum and Abar. He came out of the bar on that moment. Okay, so this gets us started today. All these thoughts about Bitachon, the eight levels of Bitachon from Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, quoting the Chobos Halavavos, and two answers about how to put the Medrash together. Here we go. So now let's get into some nitty-gritty Parshas Miketz. So if you remember the story, Yosef is taken out of the pit after Para has these dreams. Dreams of cows, dreams of sheaths. And we mention at least once a year, so I'll mention it now, the, the uh, comparing Vayeshev and Miketz. Why is it that in Vayeshev, Yosef starts off on the top of the mountain and at the end of Vayeshev, he's on the bottom of the mountain, he's sitting in jail. And in Miketz, he's in the bottom, he starts off in jail and he ends up the viceroy of the king. What's the difference? The Bali Machshava explain. Vayeshev, he starts focusing on his own dreams. And therefore, that takes him down. Miket, he starts listening to other people's dreams and helping them, and that's what brings him up. Life's about helping other p- p- people fulfill their dreams and not just focusing on our own dreams. Parshas Vayeshev versus Parshas Miket. Good. But now let's get back to Miket. So what happens? Yosef hears Paru's dreams and... He goes to all of the other dream interpreters. Nothing works. And finally, he goes to Yosef and says, I've heard you're a good dream interpreter. What do you say? So he starts giving him the interpretation of the dream. And then in Pasuk Lama Gimel, Pasuk Lama Gimel, right? We, uh, he says, V'ata yereparo ishnavon v'chacham. Paro should interpret, find a very wise man. Vishisehu al Eretz Mitzrayim. And appoint him on Eretz Mitzrayim. Right, so one question that is asked on this passage that we dealt with in other years, we're not going to do that here, 
is that who asked Yosef for advice? Paro said, what does my dream mean? Yosef tells him, it's going to be seven years of famine and seven years, plenty of seven years of famine. He tells him, and then what does Yosef say? And by the way, you should really appoint somebody very wise to be in charge. Thank, Paro, Yosef, thank you very much. I didn't ask you for your help. I just asked you to tell me what this means. It's like a parent who tells a child to explain something to the child, and then the child starts giving his own two cents. I didn't ask you for that. Just tell me what the dream means. Why is Yosef giving advice here? One question, not for now. But the other question is, so what does Yosef say? There's going to be years of plenty and then years of famine. So appoint somebody very wise to make sure that in the years of plenty, you gather all the food and you keep it so that you'll have food in the years of famine. Asks Reb Elio Lopian, source number five, page number three, now source number five. Why do you have to be so smart in order to gather food in the years of plenty. Why do you need such a chacham for that? Yosef says to Paro, appoint somebody really smart, really wise, in order to, to put the food all together. Says Rebellio Lopian, quoted here in the Lekartov, Liach HaShepada Yosef Paros HaChalom, Right? Once Yosef appointed, uh, interpreted the dream, he tells him to appoint a very smart person. Why do you need somebody so smart? What To gather food. You know there's going to be years of famine, so just gather all the food in the silos, in the factor, in the uh, in the big warehouses. What does he have to be so smart for? Says of Elliot Yan, an unbelievable answer, which has a message for our lives. And he has a marshal that relates it to our life. This is a take-home of Elliot Lapian. Right here. Says Reveli Yapyan, line four. Vitiri Sha'amnam Nachon. Iluizazu Agira Regila. If this was just a regular gathering of food, Lohaya Yosef Malas Hatsaashal Khipus Akhrinavon Fakacham. If it was just, you know, please put the bundles away, you know, we went shopping, put it back in the pantry, you don't have to be a chacham for that. But you know what the problem is here? Dover Yadua who where it's underlined. Shebeshaz hasova, when somebody feels like they have everything, when you feel like you have plenty, it's very hard to be careful about every little bit. It's very hard not to be wasteful when you feel that there's a ton. Right? When there's a drought, then everybody's being careful about every drop of water. But when there's no drought, when you have everything, then who's careful? We throw up three, we throw out a ton. Dabra Yadua, Shebeshas Hasova, when there's a, when there's satiation, where there's plenty, Yeshnu Zilzul, Baha'aracha, Klapeha Ochel. There's a Zilzul, we don't take it so seriously. Mikivan Sheyodim, Shashefa Matsui, since we know that we have so much, Avechan, Eno Chosech, Favechan, Eno Makamets. Right, we throw out so much, so much when we feel like we have everything. It's just, it's just, it's, it's natural. I don't feel the need to, to cut corners and to save every little bit because I think I have everything. Lu'umadzots, in contrast, Bashan's Patsoras, if there's a famine, if there's a drought, then everybody's focused on using every single thing or saving. Every drop of wheat, 
Right? If you're, if, if somebody's sitting in a, in a cave and they have no food, then every little thing they're gonna, they're gonna be careful about, they're gonna guard. It's only when you have everything, so that's when, that's when it's, it's very hard. Yosef knew that in the seven years of fat, of plenty, a natural person is not gonna be so careful to save every little bit. It's, it's gonna be very hard to save when you think you have everything. Right? What does Yosef tell him? You have to plan. You have to take every, I'm telling you, you're going to have to take every single grain and put it away as if there's a famine now. Because there's going to be a famine in seven years from now and you're going to have nothing. And you're going to be, want every single grain. But you're not going to be able to do it naturally. Because who could save when you have everything? So Yosef tells him, what's the only way that you could really save every grain when you have everything? If you put your mentality into the situation, it's as if you have nothing. If you could put yourself in, if you could picture yourself in a situation that you have nothing, that's the only way that you're going to be successful. Picture as if you have nothing. Not that you have everything. Rock line 13. Only through this type of feeling, only then, and for that, you need somebody very wise. You could just have any guy to do that. You have to have, to have somebody who thinks deeply, who understands the consequences of what's going to be in the future. We all know that phrase, to be Roas and Olad, to know the future. But he's unbelievable. Think about the phrase. He doesn't just say, Yodea es hanolad. You know the future. Roe es hanolad. You see it in front of you. If you see it in front of you, that's the best way that you could plan for it. Lorak Yodea es hanolad. El roe oso You see it. Who only him. Mesugalis yaches el hanolad. Kilhu nimsakvar. Only he could, could, could see that if I see the future in front of me, then I could take precautions for the future. And that's why Yosef tells Paro, you got to get a really smart person, a really wise person who could put himself into the future situation of lack, of famine, even though he feels like he has everything now. And says Lapian, let's think about our lives. Let's think about Olamazeh. You know what Olamazeh is? Olamazeh, these are the years of plenty. These are the years that you could go to the shelf in the store and take any mitzvah off the shelf. I could take tzitzis, I could take tefillin, I could take chesed, I could take Torah. I could go, there's plenty now. There's so much. There's everything is here. There's sovagado, b'meshach shivim shana, v'imbikvru shmonim shana, yishlanu is damnios ein sfor, l'kbos v'lagar mitzvahs, v'schiz l'kras olam haba. We live in the years of plenty. Every single day, there are thousands of opportunities of mitzvos. You know what Olam Haba is? It's the years of famine. Why is it famine? Because you can no longer do. That's years of, what does the Gemara say in Avodah Zarah? If you, if you don't cook on Erev Shabbos, you're not going to have any hot food on Shabbos. Shabbos is Olam Haba. Shabbos is unbelievable. But if you didn't prepare for Shabbos, you're going to starve on Shabbos. Olam Haba is Shabbos. You can't earn anything unless you put it into play in this world. Right, he quotes from the Grah. They say the Grah on his deathbed. 
Right when he, before he's about to die, he picked up his tzitzes and he started crying. He says, I'm leaving a world that for a few kopecks, a few pennies, I could do the easiest mitzvah of tzitzes and earn olam haba. And in a few moments from now, says the grad's finished. Because he realized, he knew that he's living in the years of plenty. And you have to be able to see the years of famine. You have to be able to see Olam Haba in front of you. Realize the moments that we're not going to be able to earn anymore in order to use every single second. Line 29. We have to all make sure that we are Ish Navon Vachacham. We are Roe Es Hanolad. And we have to weigh the values of our actions. And not to be wasteful. Just like we throw out a lot of food to throw, throw out a lot of uh, opportunities. And then he gives an unbelievable mashal. I'm not sure if this is from the Revelio Lopian, but also from the Lekato. He already quoted the message. But then he quotes something that really brings it home to us. He says there's a story. Misafrim, the next paragraph. There were two countries that are fighting for years and years. The king says, you know what? If one, if anybody could figure out a way that we could end this war, I'm gonna let, I'm gonna give them a great prize. You know what the prize is? I'm gonna give you five minutes in my treasure house. Five minutes to go into the treasure house and to take anything you want, the gold and the silver. Five minutes. Everybody's like, whoa, whoa. Finally, one guy. One guy figures out a peace treaty and figures out, this is, I got it. See, he goes and he does the peace treaty and he, he, he stopped the war. And the king's like, okay, unbelievable. Okay, next week, next Tuesday, come and, and you're going to be able to go in for five minutes. And all of a sudden, the king is like, oh my God. Now what am I going to do? I'm going to give away my treasures. I'm going to give away, I, I knew I wanted this war to be over, but, but what did I say? Oh my, I, I, he's going to just go in and take. What do I do? And all of a sudden, some of his advisors gave him an idea. They did some research on this guy. And they told him, this guy loves classical music. He loves it. He loves it. It's unbelievable. Right when he goes in to the treasure house, start playing classical music. He's going to get distracted. He's going to lose himself. He's going to, like, oh. The king's like, okay, great idea. So that's the best, best chance I have. Okay, I'm going to go in. Fine. The day comes, and this guy, this guy who had made the peace treaty, he already bought himself a new suit, and his, a new, he drives up in a fancy car because everybody gave it to him on credit because they knew he's going into the treasury house for five minutes. He's going to be able to get whatever he wants. Unbelievable. And the story continues. And he goes in and finally the king's like, you're ready? He's like, I'm ready. He's like, okay, one, two, three. Opens the door. He walks in and he's about to start filling up his sacks and all of a sudden he hears music being piped in. And it's like, whoa, what is that? And he's in a different world because he hears the most unbelievable babag on Beethoven. He's like, whoa. And a few seconds later, he's like, oh, wait, one second, one second, one second. He finds himself again. And he's about to start taking it again. And then all of a sudden, another song, a better song. He's like, whoa. whoa. And he loses himself again for a few, a few moments. And, it keeps, and he keeps going. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to go into the, the inner sanctum. And he runs in where he knows where the real gold is. He runs in there. When he gets into that new room, the most beautiful, unbelievable, classical symphony is playing. And he's like, oh, and he's what? 
And all of a sudden, he's about to pick up, and all of a sudden he hears, time's up, time's up, time to come out. And he realized he had five minutes, and he blew it on the other pleasures that covered up the real treasures that he could have gotten out of it. In this world, there's so much classical music playing for us that's making us not focus on the real treasures, on the real mitzvot, right? We have those five minutes. We have 120 years, but that's like five minutes, right? That's all that we have. And the goal of life is to focus and to realize that in these years of plenty, when we have everything, we have to make sure that we don't have a hesachadas turning over. We don't blow it. We don't focus, even if it's nice. Classical music is nice. But we don't realize it. We don't realize and we don't have that hesachadas that at the end of our lives we can scream out and say, what's happened? What was I focusing on? So we have Yosef telling Paro, but really Yosef is telling all of us. Yosef is telling us we got to be smart with our lives. <laughs> okay, moving right along. Continuing. Got to take that one home. Okay, Parag Mem Aleph. Pasik Nun. Pasik Nun. Says the, uh, says the, says the Torah. Torah tells us after he gets the, uh, uh, instructions, he, uh, Paro says, is there anybody so smart? And the Pasik tells us right before Ravi that Yosef gets married. Yosef has two children, uh, and who, and who, Menashe and Ephraim. Who is Yosef's wife? Torah tells us. We don't know from the text. We don't really know the wives of Moshvatim. We know Yehuda, the Torah mentions, but we don't know the wives of most of the Shvatim right here. The wife of Yosef. Who is his wife? Uli Yosef Banim, Asnas Bas Potifera, Kohen On. Who was this? Yosef was married to the daughter of Potifera. Who is Potifera? So Chazal tell us Potifar. What was Potifar? So the Pasuk tells us, uh, not here, but earlier, Chazal tell us the Gemara Misecha Sota, Potifar is Potifar, but really, right, he was uh, injured, whatever, Chazal came, but he married the daughter of Potifar, and he's just Potifar. He married their daughter? What's going on here? The last time we met, he did not have such a good relationship with Asia's Potifar, and Potifar threw him in jail, now he's out of jail, okay, but... What happened? So Chazal tell us that really Asia's Potiphar was very sly, but she saw something in the stars. She saw that her family is supposed to be connected to Yosef. Her mistake was that she thought it was supposed to be her and not, and not her daughter. That was the mistake that Asia's Potiphar made. What does that sound like? We know there was someone else that saw something in the stars. Tamar. Last week's Parsha. Tamar also had Ruach HaKodesh that she was supposed to be with Yehuda. Her family was supposed to be with Yehuda's family. So, Er didn't work. Onan didn't work. The first two sons didn't work. Shela wasn't working. Yehuda wasn't giving his third son. So she took the law into her own hands and she worked out that she could be with Yehuda. Both Tamar and Asha's Potiphar saw something in the future and did something that on the surface is a little gray area. Looks like a little gray area. 
asks the Aznaim Latora, source number five. Really, he quotes this question from his son. He quotes the question from his son. What's the difference between the two? Why did Tamar's action end with Malchus based David? Right, and Tamar, Malchus based David. And Aisha's Potiphar's action ended in, in uh, negativity, ended in Aisha's Potiphar going down as the woman who tried to seduce Yosef. What's the difference? They both had this vision in the future. Why did Tamar end well and not Aisha's Potiphar? Let's read it now. Source number five. There is a measure that says, that was her name, she saw in the stars that she was supposed to, her family was supposed to create progeny from Yosef. Hiksha Bini, my son, Rav Zalman Saratska, the Zayim Latar quotes his son, Rabbi Eliezer Shlita, Who's now uh, Rami Minale Yeshivas tells Asher to Cleveland, right? We know that Zion Latoris children, right? His grandchildren now in Cleveland tells Yeshiva. So he calls his son here. Halokam Tamar Asta Shaloka Hogan Elishin Eskavn L'Shem Shemayim. What's the difference between Tamar's actions and Aisha's Potiphar's actions? If they were both driven by a by a vision of the future. Va'amar Bazera Yon Yafet. And he quotes his son who said something very nice. There are people out there that do activities that aren't totally pure, perfect. They're a little bit in the gray area. But if somebody does a mitzvah, it's obviously a mitzvah, but if somebody does one of these controversial actions. So, the question is, they say they're the L'shem Shamayim. How do you really know if they're L'shem Shamayim? If somebody is doing something somewhat controversial, what Tamar did, we might say, was somewhat controversial. Right? What Asia's Potiphar did was somewhat controversial, to put it mildly. So how do we know if they were really L'shem Shamayim? They, people sometimes say they're L'shem Shemayim, but they're really not L'shem Shemayim. They might not even realize that they're not L'shem Shemayim. So how do we know? How can we test ourselves whether we are L'shem Shemayim or not? Line 18. You know what the answer is? If there are stumbling blocks, if we see all of a sudden that what we're trying to do is not working, what we're trying to do, we're not able to do it. How hard do we try? We're involved in something controversial and we're trying to do it. And then we seem to get messages from God. How hard do we try? You know, this isn't a Sam Sahara. You know, if we're, if we're in bed and we can't get up for minion, you know, if we get out of bed, it's like... Oh, you know, the Yetzirah was trying really hard. How hard? Oh, of course we have to try hard. We have to try hard, very, 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 very hard. But that, that's a pure mitzvah. But if something is involved in something controversial like Tamar and Aisha's Potiphar, and there are stumbling blocks, and it's not working so hard, so what's the reaction? Is the reaction, oh, it must be God doesn't want me to do this? Or is the reaction, you know, I'm going to try even harder? Says the Zion Latorah's son, in that situation, God's trying to tell you something. 
And maybe the year you should say, okay, I guess God doesn't want me to do this. Because that would be a reflection of L'Shem Shamayim. If I try and do everything I can and don't stop, that would reflect it's my own taiva. And it's not for God. What happened with Aisha's Potiphar? She didn't stop. Yosef said no and no and no and no. And she didn't stop. And she didn't take it as a simon that it wasn't supposed to be hers. That shows it was pure taiva. It wasn't that she was L'Shem Shamayim. What about Tamar? What did she do? It was easy. I mean, with Yehuda, when she started, let's see what he says. Even when she's going out to be killed, what does she say to herself? She doesn't embarrass Yehuda. Maybe what I did was wrong. Maybe I'm supposed to be killed. I'm not going to say a word. I'm going to privately send the stuff back to Yehuda. If he announces it, he announces it. But she was ready to give up her life because you know why? She was acting L'shem Shamayim. And she said to herself, maybe what I did was wrong. And therefore, she didn't say a word. And that is why it says, the Azayim Latar, V'chinasa Tamar, line 24, I'll be burned. I'm not going to embarrass Yehuda. Because she was acting L'shem Shamayim. Eishas Potiphar, not. And we always have to ask ourselves, sometimes we're involved in activities that maybe are somewhat, you know, not as pure as they should be. And we have to ask ourselves, are we really out for God or are we out for ourselves? And a litmus test is when things aren't going in that, in that way. Do we keep trying harder or do we realize it's a message from God? Okay. Two more thoughts on the Parsha and then we'll end with some thoughts related to Hanukkah. Just one quick thought. From Salvechik. When Yosef finally comes in these exciting parshas, the brothers come to Yosef, and what happens? We're on the same page. I misnumbered here, I apologize. There's another four and five and six, even though on the previous page it was already four and five. I misnumbered because I was looking at the page number. Whatever. Now we're up to page, source number six on the bottom. So what happens? Yosef's brothers come to him, Pasik Zion, in Perak Membez. Vayar Yosefes Echav Vayakirem. Yosef sees his brothers and he recognizes them. He speaks to them very harshly. You came, you're spies. Next pasik. Yosef recognizes them again. Answer of Salvechik, two psukim in a row. He recognized them, he spoke harshly to them. He recognized them and he remembers the dreams and the whole story starts. What's the double recognition? He recognized them and he recognized them. Says the Rav, says Rav Salvechik, source number six. Yosef first sees his brothers. He recognizes whose they are and he remembers the pain. And he remembers being thrown into the pit. And he remembers the jealousy. He remembers even the hatred. That's what he recognizes first. And that's why, what did the first part say? He recognizes them and he started screaming at them. You are spies. What are you doing here? The first identification was based on past experience. The brothers were the same people, the same character, the same quick tempers, the same ruthless natures. But then Yosef looked at them a little deeper and he sees something different in their eyes. And he sees they're not the same people they were decades ago. Studying their faces, however, he discovers a change. Levi and Shimon's faces softened. It didn't reflect the same ferocity. They had a different look. The brothers looked depressed as if they had an inner peace, etc. So now Yosef recognizes them in a different way. 
These are my brothers. Maybe they have a change of heart. He realizes they're out looking for him. And he says, I'm going to help them find me. But I'm going to help them realize that they are different than they were. I see the difference. But sometimes they can't see the difference. Sometimes as we grow in life, we don't realize we're growing until somebody else sees us and recognizes the difference and tells us, clues us in about it. Says Misaris Harav, says the Rav. That's what Yosef did too. He recognized them and then he recognized them again. Fascinating. Okay, now let's get back to something very well known, which we mentioned seven years ago, but I just wanted to add something to that point. The most famous question on Parsha's Vayeshev, the question is that all the Rishonim deal with, why didn't Yosef tell them? Why didn't Yosef tell them? The brothers came to him, and Yosef put on this whole charade. This whole charade, he sends them back, Binyamin, why didn't Yosef just say, Guys, it's me. Go get Yaakov. Go get your father. He must be in so much pain. Why didn't Yosef reveal himself? That's the most famous question and maybe most important question on Vayeshev, Miketz, Vayigash. So, many answers given. Let's review the Ramban. The Ramban in source number seven now. The Ramban tells us, I'm not going to read it inside because, again, we did it seven years ago, even though it's good Chazara. Some of us might not remember. Um, the Ramban tells us the Torah clues us in for the answer. What does the Torah say? There's an extra Pasuk. Not extra, Chas Shalom. But what does the Torah say? The Pasuk that we just read. Yosef recognizes the brothers and he remembers his dreams. And then he starts the whole story. Why is that Pasuk stuck in there that he remembered his dreams? Pasuk test. He remembered his dreams and then he says to them, I don't believe you. Do you have another brother? Right? What, what, what is that Pasuk stuck in there for? He remembers the dreams. So the Ramban writes in source number seven, Yosef understood his dreams as prophecy, as a nevuah. And he felt that it was his job to help the dreams become fulfilled. And that means getting Binyamin down there. Because it was 11 stars that bowed down to him. And he needs that to be fulfilled. That was Yosef. He needed it. And then the Mepharshim asked on the Ramban, why was it Yosef's uh, job? But that's what the Ramban says. If you know of a prophecy, you have to do what you can to try to fulfill that prophecy. That's the Ramban here. So I never put it together. But if you look in source number eight, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky puts another Ramban together with this one. Another well-known Ramban. The Ramban on the Brisbane Habasarim. A question that the Ramban, the Rambam, and others deal with. The question is, already by the Brisbane Habasarim, Hashem tells Avram Avinu, your people will be subjugated in a land that is not their own. Right? For hundreds of years and eventually I'll take them out and I'll bring them to the promised land. Right? That's the the prophecy that is said in the Brisbane Abbasarim. And all the Rishonim ask, if it was already prophesied, so what the Egyptians do wrong? What the Mitzrayim do wrong? They were just fulfilling the prophecy. Right? So what, what's the, what was the, what was the problem? Says the Rambam, the Ramban in source number eight, from Parshas Lechlech, quotes the Rambam and the Mernavuchim. Well, says the Rambam, any one of the Egyptians didn't have to subjugate the Jews. They all had Bechir to choose 
whether they would subjugate the Jews. Each one of them could have said, no, 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 I'm not going to be involved. And because they chose, that's why they're punished. That's the Rambam Shita. And the Ramban has his own opinion. They went above and beyond. But what's the Ramban's question on the Rambam? Amazing. The Ramban says, Rambam, what do you say? Each one of them could have chosen not to do it? No. Just the opposite. If they know that the prophecy is that they're supposed to subjugate the Jews, they should jump to subjugate the Jews to fulfill the prophecy. Because if you have a nevuah, you should jump to try to fulfill the nevuah. So Rambam, I think you're totally wrong in your approach. But what's the Ramban's attitude in his question? Second to last line in source number eight. I think he's wrong. Even if you don't specify which nation is going to do it, or which individuals, then every nation should jump and try to do it. Says the Emes Liyakov, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, we learn a yesod from this. Not only do I need to try to fulfill mitzvos, I need to try to fulfill nevuos, prophecies. And Rabbi Yaakov writes this, came out of Sefer, came out to, uh, last year, the Emes Liyakov on Navi, on Sefer Malachim, beginning of uh, Sefer Malachim, Nasan Navi goes and tries to make sure that David Amalekh is going to make Shlomo the king. Why is he so involved? So Rabbi Yaakov explains in Source 9 and 10, because he's the one that gave the prophecy that Shlomo is going to be the king. And if you know of a prophecy, then... Look at Rabbi Yaakov's words at the end of source number nine. Just like every mitzvah we have to try to fulfill, because every mitzvah is the will of God, so too every prophecy is also the will of God, and we have to try to fulfill it. Halavai, we should all try to get to fulfill prophecies, but that's the important yesod of Rabbi Yaakov. Okay, let's try to finish up now with a thought or two on Hanukkah. One small one and one medium one. First thought. First thought, which Rachman al has a lot of, of ramifications to our day and age. Source number 11. Says the Revol Chano Wasserman, quoted in Elohe Moadai. We say in al that there was tremendous miracles. Rabim Miyamiatim, but we say what Hashem did in the war. The first line is understandable why that's a miracle. Rabim b'yad miatim. Ask Rebbe Chanan, why are the next phrases miraculous? Rishayim b'yad tzadikim. Is that like amazing? Rishayim are always stronger than tzadikim? You could have some tzadikim that work out and some Rishayim that are, are somewhat weak. Why would Dafka saying, Hashem, you made the Rishayim fall into the hands of the tzadikim? Why is that so amazing? Okay, we thank Hashem for it, but it's in Alanisim. So why is that so amazing? Answer Rabbanan Wasserman. Says Rabbanan and Rachmana Litzlan, we see it Ad Hayomazet. A Russia does not care about life, his own life, or anybody else's life. And therefore he always has the upper hand. Because it's Sadik is always sensitive to life. And even when it's Sadik has to kill, he'll do it in a certain way. He'll try to not have collateral damage while the Russia doesn't care. Rahman al-Islam in our day and age. Right, suicide bombers. Why are they so dangerous? 
Because they don't care. They don't care about themselves. They don't care about anyone else. That's the definition of a Russia. Says Rabbi Khanan a hundred years ago. And that's what we've had through history. A Russia doesn't care about any, and it's sadly does. And that's why a Russia naturally always has the upper hand. Because that's what they believe in. They, they don't try to cut corners in their killing. They don't try to be careful. And therefore, we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu. When a tzaddik wins, the fact that Am Yisrael, the fact that there's a state of Israel today while there are billions of surrounding neighbors that want and don't care about their lives, that miracle continues. Every, every tragedy is painful. But we also have to realize, that's what makes the challenge greater. But we don't compromise on our values. Because we stay being tzaddikim, but we thank Hashem for the protection that He gives us. Number one. But then number two. Another thought about Hanukkah, which, which should be a more famous question. But we'll have to make it famous right now. There is a famous thought of the Lavush and the Taz. Right? The question is asked, Purim versus Hanukkah. Why is it that on Purim there's an obligation to have a meal, a chiv suda, while Hanukkah there's no chiv suda? You don't have to eat bread and have a meal. The Ramah says that if you have a meal with singing, with every Torah, then it turns into a Suda's Mitzvah. But, Mitzah, the obligation, only Purim. Why is that? So the most famous answer given is that Purim was a physical... I'm sorry. Yeah, Purim was a physical danger. So the celebration is physical too. There's a physical uh, celebration. Hanukkah was a spiritual danger at root, spiritual danger, Hellenism, and therefore we have a, there's no physical celebration that's mandated, right? Spiritual celebration, so spiritual self, uh, danger, so spiritual salvation. That's the, the answer of the Lavush and the Tas. But let's ask, ask something to that. Isn't it ironic, isn't it interesting that Hanukkah which was the spiritual danger. How did we achieve the salvation? We fought a war. We fought a war to bring the spiritual salvation from the spiritual danger. What about Purim? Purim, we were in physical danger. So what did we do? First, what did we do? We davened and fasted. We spiritually did what we can and Hashem helped us. How many sons were killed? And then eventually it led to a little war. But the main action by Purim was the spiritual. So isn't that interesting? In the story that had the physical danger of Purim, we did something spiritual to save ourselves. Right? We davened and we fasted. By Hanukkah, which was the spiritual danger, what did we do? We fought a physical war. Why is that? Why did that work out? So in, in the Oshos HaTorah on Hanukkah in Source 12, he quotes, amazing, he says, everything in life is up to God, except my ruchnius. What does the Gemara say? In need and brachas, in the first mesech, and the last mesech, and shas. Hakol bidei shamayim, chutz mi yirat shamayim. Everything is out of my control, except, yirat, except my own spiritual state. So, Purim, what was going on on Purim? The Jews were physically in danger. Who's in charge of the Jews' state? Physical state, God. Hashem is in charge of their physical state. That's why you daven and you fast. That's the way to bring a salvation. 
Yes, like we started off, Ishtabos, but ultimately it was the spiritual. Hanukkah. We are in spiritual danger. Spiritual, that's up to us. Spiritual, Yerat Shemayim, Akobi Deishwayim, We have to step up to the plate ourselves. If we want to fight for our spiritual independence, our spiritual allowance, that's what we have to do. And he quotes from the Makar Baruch. The Makar Baruch is the, if you remember, is the biography of the Torah Tamima of the, uh, of the Baruch Levi Epstein about his uncle. My uncle the Nitziv. That's what it was called in English. My uncle the Nitziv uh, when it first came out years ago. But he writes a story there about the Beis HaLevi. I've heard the story about other Dolem, but he writes about the Beis HaLevi. Beis HaLevi once saw a student that he hadn't seen in a long time. And he asked the student, oh, what are you up to? What are you doing? And he says... I'm involved in this business and in this investment and in this and in that. And what he tells him about it. The basic lady was around a table with students. He looks at him and he goes back, doesn't say a word to him. He continues talking with other people. Ten minutes later, he turns back to this student and says, News, what are you up to? What's going on? What are you doing? Like, I just told you. He repeats it. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a this. I'm a that. I'm investing. Basically, he looks at him again, ignores him, and goes back to the conversation with the other ten people. Finally, the third time, he asks him again. He says, no, what are you up to? What's going on? He says, Rebbe, I have no idea what you're talking about. You asked me that twice already. He said, yes, and you obviously missed the point every time. I didn't ask you what God's doing for you. I asked you what you are doing. Parnassa has to do with what God's doing for you. If I asked you what's going to do for you, you could tell me. You're a lawyer, you're a this, you're a that. Then you can tell me that. I ask you, what are you doing? What's going on? That means, what are you learning? What are you davening? How are you growing? I didn't ask what God's doing for you. I asked what you're doing. And that's exactly Purim versus Hanukkah. Hanukkah, we were spiritually in danger. So we had to fight for our spiritual independence. Purim, physical danger. So we fasted and we davened until HaKadosh Baruch Hu brought us the Yeshua. An amazing hosafa to the usual thought of the Lavush, physical, spiritual, but the, the danger was physical and spiritual, but the, sal- the, the salvation was brought about by the opposite. Okay, we'll stop here. And we'll continue next week with Parshas Vayigash.